So with that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to turn it over to Kathy, and we're going to sing two Christmas carols, and then when we finish, we're going to sing one more. And while she's doing that, I'm going to hand out things, okay? You ready to go? Oh, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this Sunday school class and this time we have together. This morning, we remember Ron Skates, who is sick, and we ask that you would, whatever you do, get him well before Christmas Day so that he can enjoy Christmas Eve and Christmas with his family. We ask that you would bless his family and take care of them. And Lord, all of those who this Christmas season are suffering a loss or who uh, are not feeling up to speed, we pray that you would be with them during this wonderful season. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Way that I still play the guitar. <laughs> so I've pretty much memorized how to play Christmas carols, I hope. So we're going to start with uh, Oh Come All You Faithful. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. What's the next verse that I wrote down? Yea, Lord, we greet Thee, born this happy morning, Jesus, to closing prayer today we're going to do silent night so hold on to the song sheets i think does everybody have i didn't think so <laughs> good to see you so when ron when ron called me he gave me what he intended to talk on 
but I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. So I had to invent my own lesson. Um, and what I thought we would do is look at the prophecies of Jesus, um, and I thought I would talk a little bit about why the early church thought they were important and why we might think they're important, which is not necessarily exactly the same thing. And to do that, I thought I would start out with a reading from Romans. This is from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1, and I'm probably going to stop around verse 6. So hear the word of God as it comes to us from the Apostle Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And the little section I wanted to emphasize is where he says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scripture. So we're going to pray again. Lord, as we take a few minutes to think about these verses and to think about what you've given to us in your scriptures, we pray that you would open our hearts, that your truth might be revealed to us in a new and powerful way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I was thinking earlier this week about this lesson, and I was also thinking about something that I've puzzled about over the last several years. But if we go back to the Gospel of Luke, for an example, you will notice that from the time Jesus is transfigured on the mountain in Galilee to the time that he is raised up into heaven, three or four times he is said that he complains that the apostles are slow to understand and then he proceeds to explain to them that the Son of Man must suffer, die, and be resurrected from the dead by teaching them from the prophets. So it seems that Jesus himself thought that the prophecies of his coming were important. He thought they were important. And we know that the early church thought that they were important if you go right back to the second chapter of Acts, what you find is immediately Peter is preaching a sermon in which he basically goes through some Old Testament prophecies to say that this man Jesus, who was crucified and who we claim was raised from the dead, was the Messiah of Israel. So it's a way of saying that the church has always thought that these prophecies have meaning for us and that they're important for our faith. 
for a number of reasons. I'm just going to give you two reasons to start out with. It is an assurance of the truth of the gospel that what has transpired in Christ was foreseen by the prophets. Um, to be quite frank, in my whole Christian life, I've not thought that was the most important, important part of it, but a lot of people do think that's the most important part of it. Uh, but the second thing that is important about it is that it shows that through the Old Testament, there is a line by which God is revealing to Israel the kind of Messiah that he intends to bring them. And it's not the Messiah they expected, okay? That God's trying to teach his people what kind of a Messiah he's going to give them, but it's not the kind that they expect. Now, I had a choice to make today, and I decided uh, only to deal with Christmas. Um, naturally, a large number of those prophecies are prophecies that the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant, which are found largely in the second half of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 forward, okay? So that those prophecies, which I would call the Easter prophecies, uh, are the prophecies of the death and resurrection of the Christ. Today we're really going to focus on the prophecies up to the time of John the Baptist, so the prophecies of the birth of Christ, okay? However, I'm going to stop and uh, Ron, uh, Paul mentioned last week, I'm going to be teaching a, a little series here, uh, maybe for six weeks, uh, beginning around the middle of February, which happens to be around uh, Lent of this year. So I'm going to give the class three options that you can advise me of by email or by phone or personally. Um, I've written a book, I think I told you when I taught last time, called Crisis of Discipleship. It's on disciple making in the world we live in. And uh, we can, by doing a couple chapters a week of that, we can do that before Easter. That's option one I, I will give to you. Option two I will give to you is we could look at some of the prophecies that are contained in the, from Isaiah 40 forward um, and look to see what the Messiah was going to be like in his life and resurrection. Second option we could do. Uh, third option is Acts is always a good book, and I think by talking to um, Tom and emailing around with Paul and others, it's been revealed to me you all haven't studied Acts in quite some time, and so it might be that we could do that. So please feel free. If nobody tells me what to do, I'll have to decide for myself. But to tell you the truth, I'd rather do what you want to do than uh, this. Yes? You want to take a vote right now? Oh, okay, we'll take a little vote. How many would like to do discipleship? Kathy, you're going to have to count because I'm a bag. One, two, three, four, five. How many would like to do prophecies of Jesus? I, I think that's more. And how many would like to do Acts? It looks like it's going to be prophecies of Jesus to me. So. You can vote for all the above, yes. It's not very helpful, but you can do it. Um, okay. So back to our study today. Um, I'm going to also read to you just a little bit. I think it's a good introduction. This is from Matthew. Just a word. Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Matthew, in particular, 
is interested in showing that the life of Jesus matched the Old Testament prophecies. So here's how he begins. I'm just going to read a little bit from and skip the genealogies. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Can you lower your volume a little bit? I can't. <laughs> um, I'm not in control. Um, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you can see that right from the beginning in Matthew, he's trying to do two things. He's trying to show that Jesus is a son of David and therefore qualified by birth and genetics to be the king of Israel according to the flesh. And that Jesus is the son of God born by the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore qualified uh, to be the savior of the world. Uh, and the second part of that, I say, is something that I really don't think most Jews of the day would have considered was what they expected in a Messiah. So the second part is sort of what I would call the unexpected part of this. So with that, um, let's just go through a few, uh, a little word about this little spreadsheet. Um, if you go on the internet today, you can find a hundred spreadsheets about the prophecies of Jesus. Uh, there are several hundred struck through the Old Testament. One of my principles of handouts is they can't be more than one page, and so I can't put hundreds, not in a type you can read, uh, on two pages. But if you go through, you can yourself research this. It's pretty easy to do actually today. So I just thought we would go through a few of them. And what I want to ask you to do is please ask any questions that you have. Don't, if I don't know the answer, I'll just say I don't know the answer. Uh, if, but please ask any questions that you have. And secondly, if you have questions that are not in this, go ahead and ask them, or if you have a comment to make. So uh, I put this one in just because it's largely thought to be the first of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. But as far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read that I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet. 
And the fulfillment I put down for that was now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And he was thought to be the son of, and then you go through the prophecies in Luke, you find out that he's thought to be a son of Adam. I think I'll stop there. One of the differences between Luke and Matthew is Luke traces the Messiah all the way back to Adam, which means he's interested in proving that Jesus is the Messiah for the whole world, the entire human race. Matthew only traces it back to Abraham, the founder of Israel, which means he's primarily interested in showing that this is the Messiah of Israel. So Luke and Matthew have two different purposes in their Gospels. One's universal. The second one's universal, too. But the second one, though, is focused on specifically Israel. Okay? So he's writing primarily to Jews. So any questions about that particular prophecy? Well, let's go down to the second one, um, which is found in Genesis 49.10, uh, which is, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Okay, and I, I put uh, to that one the same verses before, uh, but I want to stop and talk about that particular prophecy because I think it's interesting. Um, the Jews, when they looked at this passage from Genesis, thought of it as having been fulfilled by David. And the fact is, David was able to conquer the surrounding nations. So he conquered Moab and he conquered all these little countries that, surround is that surrounded Israel. And so they would have thought the word nations applied to that area that David had conquered for Israel. Okay? That's what they would have thought reading it. And that's what they were going to experience. We read it somewhat differently because we read it universally. That is to say that the line will be David's until the one comes to whom all the nations belong. To whom all of creation belongs. We see it as universal. Okay? As a sign of God's universal love for the human race and desire to save all human beings. But it does begin a line that we've seen in these genealogies, and the line is from Abraham through, well, through Adam, through Abraham, now through Judah, okay, of which David is a member. And since Jesus was descended from David, it means Jesus is also a member of the line of Judah. This prophecy has been fulfilled in his birth. Okay, now David's offspring will be king, and I must tell you I made a mistake. I told you I was babysitting a three-year-old, and when you do that, you don't always do the right thing. Um, so, uh, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, now, the, the fulfillment of that prophecy is in the Romans text that I read at the beginning, not in a re repetition of the same text in a longer version. But let's stop there and talk about 
once again, what did the Jews think they had read, and what do we as Christians think we have read? And the answer is, this is a prophecy that David's kingdom will not end. David's kingdom will last forever. But we know, and the Jews knew, that as a matter of historical fact, that was not the way it was. In fact, uh, David was uh, succeeded by Solomon, who had a long and successful reign, but who overtaxed the people. David's son had a short and very unsuccessful reign because when he increased the taxes, the ten northern tribes left, and the kingdom of David was never seen again uh, to this very day, as a matter of fact. Okay? Now, you have to go to seminary to know this little fact, but the fact is, in the Old Testament, uh, as the Jews wrote the Old Testament, this prophecy was sort of changed over time uh, because it appears in two different ways in the Bible. The first is, your kingdom will never end, David's kingdom will never end. The second is that if David's children are not faithful, I will remove the throne from them. Okay? And the question, how can both of these be fulfilled? And the answer is, in Jesus they could be fulfilled. Uh, because at, according to the flesh, David's kingdom did end. But according to the Spirit, God was faithful to His promise and brought the unexpected Messiah in the form of Jesus. So both sides of the prophecy are fulfilled in the end in Israel's history. Uh, when they are unfaithful, they are punished. When the kings are no longer faithful to God, they lose the line. So as, according to the flesh, David's line is over. But according to the Spirit, God works in Christ to reestablish David's kingdom forever. So the prophecies are fulfilled. Once again, I think in a way that uh, the ancient Jews could not have foreseen. And if we'd been Jews, we wouldn't have foreseen this could have happened. Uh, so it's a, it's a miracle. Now the verse we uh, saw fulfilled today. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which in Matthew he says, which means God's with us, which it does. And of course, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, this is a, another remarkable prophecy from the Old Testament. If we went back and studied Isaiah 7, what we would find is that Ahaz was king at a time when Israel was being attacked and was actually losing its independence. Okay? Uh, so, Isaiah prophesies uh, that there will be a child born, and that child will fulfill the the task of liberating Israel, okay? And as a matter of historical fact, uh, Ahaz did not want the prophecy, and Isaiah said, well, I'm giving it to you anyway, because God is going to give you a sign whether you want the sign or not, okay? And the sign is that the child will be conceived. Now, Ahaz did have children, and once again, I think a Jew would have thought, well, that was the fulfillment, okay? Uh, but when the New Testament writers, particularly the apostles, looked back. They saw in this text a prophecy of the Messiah. Okay?
Um, so with, I'm going to take a little break here and uh, go to the beginning of the, the, this handout sheet. I'm going to read it to you. Um, but I think it's important for us to sort of get a little principle in our heads. A sign is a perceptible, visible indicator that communicates something not immediately apparent or to come. So a sign communicates something that is not immediately apparent or which is to come, okay, uh, in the future. Signs give you information about something or give you a warning or an instruction. Signs give us information or convey a message about things we cannot or do not yet perceive. So now I'm going to take you to American history. Uh, interestingly enough, most of us don't even know this name, but uh, there's a philosopher named C.S. Peirce. Peirce uh, was born, his father was a professor of astronomy and mathematics at Harvard. He was born before the American Civil War. Uh, you probably have never heard of the name. You might have heard of the name William James. Peirce invented pragmatism. Uh, he was one of the greatest minds in world history. He was also uh, the founder of semiotics, which is the study of science, which is why I'm talking about him. Uh, he was also a founder of modern mathematics. He was also a founder of modern logic. He was the uh, discerner of what we call inductive logic, pardon me, abductive logic, uh, which is how science works. Uh, he was himself a scientist uh, with the National Geographic Survey, and he wrote innumerable books. His insight that has made him famous in semiotics, the study of signs, is that anytime we have a sign, we have really three things going on. We have the object of the sign, we have the sign, and we have the interpreter. Okay, so let's take it to the scriptures for just a minute. So we have the sign a virgin conceives. Okay, we have, that, we have, pardon, we have the object, a virgin conceives. We have the sign, that is the prophecy that we see in the Bible, and we have the interpreter, that's the us, the writers of the Old Testament, the apostolic writers, everybody who ever looks at this, this verse looks at that sign. Okay? And every one of us interprets it slightly differently based upon our experience. Based upon our experience, our background, where we are in life. Okay? Now, I said signs are really interesting because they can refer to things we can't see. So, for example, there is a sign. I'm not going to give you the mathematical formula for it, but there is a sign uh, in quantum physics for the wave function for electrons. Anybody here ever seen an electron? We can't see electrons. Okay? But we believe they are there. And by the power of the sign, we believe we can understand them. Taken to our faith, we have these signs in Scripture, okay, uh, of something we can't see, the invisible God, okay, uh, but which we believe to be there, and we believe that the sign shows us information about that unseen reality, which is God. Okay, so all these prophecies you see, uh, they are prophecies that have been reinterpreted throughout centuries and centuries by each generation, okay, including our own, 
And each generation believes we are perceiving in the sign something that God has given for us. Uh, and I'll just, the reason I said this is because one of the reasons I'm fond of pragmatism has to do with a little joke I sometimes tell, but I always say that I've been now teaching the Bible for close to 40 years, maybe more than 40 years, uh, and I've been to seminary. Uh, and my problem is really not knowing any more scripture because if I could just put to work in my life the scripture I already know, I'd be Mother Teresa. <laughs> okay, so my problem really isn't get more Bible knowledge because honestly my problem is I don't put it to work. Okay. Well, I actually think that's true of a lot of Christians. The pragmatic principle that Purse invented is this, that all real knowledge, if it's real knowledge, leads us to some action in life, okay? So all knowledge, if it's real knowledge, takes us somewhere. It causes us to do something. It causes us to live differently because we understand something we didn't understand before. So when we go through this study today, uh, one of the things I want to encourage us to think about is not how prophecy is fulfilled in sort of the abstract. Okay, that's important, it's interesting, and I spent a lot of my life understanding it. Uh, but how does the fact that we believe this to be true change how we behave in our everyday lives? That's what William James, another pragmatist, used to call the cash value. That's the cash value of faith. The cash value is how we put it to work. That's the cash value of our faith. And so... What is it we're going to do with the lesson today? How is it going to change how we actually behave in our everyday lives? What is, so to speak, the cash value of our religious faith? That's what I really want us to focus on. And as you read these, uh, perhaps you will um, be able to think of how that might work. I think it's much harder in these texts about the birth of Christ than it is, for example, in the text about his death and resurrection. I think this is a harder little task, but nevertheless, it's worth doing. Okay, so let's look at another one. Um, the Messiah will be born or come from the north of Israel. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan for the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those upon living in the land of deep darkness upon them a light has shined and <clears throat> once again from Matthew the fulfillment of that prophecy leaving Nazareth he Joseph went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Naphtali, Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what has been said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephalti, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. So, once again, when the early church looked back upon the prophecies of Jesus, they noted that he was from Nazareth, which is in the north, in the land that was historically given to Zebulun and Naphtali when the Jews entered the land. And that this fulfilled that particular prophecy. So, um, I think I'm going to skip uh, the son of David. I'm going to do that last. Uh, 
Bethlehem will, however, be the birthplace. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. And the fulfillment, when he called together all, when he, and that's now uh, King Herod, when he called together the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then it's the same quote we've already had. So that Jesus now is going to be uh, a Galilean, okay, but being a son of David, he's going to be born in Judah, which is the land of David's tribe. More specifically, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of David. So he's going to be born in Judah, where the kings of Israel should be born, uh, and he's going to be born in this little town called Bethlehem. Now, does anybody here find that a little bit unusual? I think the Jews of his day might have, who hadn't read the Bible, uh, because where would you expect a Roman emperor to be born? Rome. So where would we expect a king of the Jews to be born? Jerusalem, the seat of the king. Where did the wise men go? They went to Jerusalem. They saw a star in the east. The star said a king was going to be born of the Jews. They went to Jerusalem because they thought, logically speaking, it would be Herod's son that would be the king that was being born. Yes, did you have a question? No. So, once again, this shows us how the early church looked back upon these and they went through different possible interpretations and they looked at it and they said, this shows that this man Jesus was in fact the Messiah because he's fulfilling all these prophecies. And of course, as I warned you, there are hundreds of them. I'm going to go to the next one uh, because it's really hard for all these to get, get fulfilled. Um, so in Hosea we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's stop there. If you'd read this as a Jew, what would you have thought it referred to? Moses. It would, we would have thought it refers to the coming of Israel out of Egypt in captivity. But when the early church looked back at this, they said, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. This is a prophecy that the Messiah will somehow also come from Egypt. And sure enough, we read in Matthew that after the wise men came and gave gifts to the baby Jesus, uh, they departed by a different route. Then Joseph was warned in a dream that Herod would try to kill the child. So he took his family down into Egypt for a time and they only came back after Herod's death so that Jesus would fulfill the prophecy that he, the Messiah not only would be born in Bethlehem, not only would be in Judah, not only would be from the Galilee, but now he's going to come out from Egypt as well. Um, I think I'm going to read one more before I go, go back um, and cover the, what I think is the ending. Kathy, you be sure I, have, I stop in enough time that we can sing Silent Night. Um, maybe I, so there's a voice of one calling the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I'm going to stop there and go, see I will, that's from Isaiah, 
from Malachi, See, I will send you the prophet Elisha before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And I'm just going to read you the second fulfillment. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew. But I tell you, Isaiah, Elisha has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they have done to him everything they wished in the name... In the same way, the Son of God is going to suffer at their hands. So Jesus, you might ask yourself, why, why does Luke spend so much time talking about the birth of John the Baptist? And the answer is because to the Jewish way of thinking, Elisha needed to come before the Messiah came to prepare the way for the Messiah, and John was that Elisha that was to come. So that prophecy was fulfilled. Okay? Um, so I'm just going to cover very briefly, I skipped one. Um, but these are famous from the Messiah. So from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, uh, there will be no end. Okay, and then the fulfillment I put was from John. For my Father who has given them to me is greater than them all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why did I choose that verse? Um, the answer is this. Um, so once again, the Jews, when they read Isaiah, they thought this was going to be a human Messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, throw out all the conquerors that had come over the years, and establish a kingdom that will never end. To be quite frank, I don't think they thought that Messiah would live forever. They thought that his kingdom would last forever, and that his children, as David had been promised, would be the kings of Israel forever. But when the church, after the resurrection, looks at these very verses, they see something quite different. They see that, that this is going to be a son of God king, a king that is not human fully, a king that will establish a kingdom which he will continue to rule forever, for he will be the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, those wonderful words from the Messiah that we sing every year. Um, this, I think, is really important because um, it, I doubt there could ever be a, a Messiah of the kind that Israel had anticipated. We human beings are not capable of creating a kingdom of peace that will never end. <laughs> we will create kingdoms of war that never end. <laughs> uh, only a son of God, only a Messiah that was not an earthly ruler could possibly fulfill this prophecy because it requires a kind of king that, quite frankly, uh, we don't see in Washington, we don't see in Moscow, we don't see in Peking, and we're not ever going to see in any other capital city. Uh, because earthly kings must rule by earthly power and the sword, and that is contrary to the rule of a heavenly king. Um, now, the last one we will read today is um, this one from Isaiah 11. For a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from the roots of a branch will bear fruit. For the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And I thought that to summarize this, I'd go all the way to the end of the Bible to Revelation. For I saw heaven open, and before me there was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head there are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. I must tell you, remember I quoted C.S. Peirce. Uh, Peirce hated Revelation. He was actually a fairly uh, devout Episcopalian of his day uh, because he thought it was too violent and that God wouldn't act that way. A God of love wouldn't act that way. I think he completely misunderstood what Revelation is trying to tell us, uh, by the way, um, because what Revelation says here is not that there will be a physical sword. It's a sword that comes from his mouth. It's the power of the Word of God, not the power of any earthly sword uh, that we see here. And the slaying of the wicked is not a physical slaying uh, that we might see by a sword. It's a spiritual saying, slaying that we would find if a person who was evil heard the word of God and repented and changed. That's the slaying. So once again, the early church looks at th this prophecy and sees that in Jesus, in the most unexpected way, uh, the prophecy was in fact fulfilled by his life, death, and resurrection. And with that, I think I'm going to close. We have about long enough. Does anybody have anything else, a question they'd like to ask? As I've said, if you just create a spreadsheet in Excel or Numbers, depending on what program, and you start duping and pasting, you can create your own list, and if you want it to be 456 Bible verses long, you can get there, okay? Uh, uh, it takes a long time to get there, but you can get there. Uh, and you can do it yourself. You don't need me. Yes? All questions are fair. Oh, that's actually a pretty fair question and an easy one to answer. The answer is, from the time I became a Christian, my favorite verse has been from 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, for behold, the old is gone and the new has come. That happens to be my favorite verse. Yes? For unto us a Savior is born. That should be our verse for the week. If we want to all have a verse for the week, that should be the verse for the week. Any other questions? I'm going to turn it back over to the lovely so, and talented I'm, Vanna White. I'm in <laughs> just to sing two uh, verses in Silent Night. Mm -hmm. And I guess I can't sing Silent Night without 
picturing a dark sanctuary with all the people holding <coughs> the candles. Mm -hmm. So that day is almost. Do you need me to hold the? Huh? I don't think. I, okay. I mean, if I if I don't remember the words, y'all just sing loud. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this lesson and for this week that we might remember your coming among us full of grace and truth. Uh, that as we move toward Christmas Eve, our hearts might be filled with the mystery that the God of heaven condescended to come in an unimaginable way to dwell with us that we might see visibly what you are like and be able ourselves by faith to follow you. We ask that we would follow you this week in our daily lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas to all. Merry Christmas.